0: Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 10, 1 through 12. If you'd like to follow along in a few Bibles, uh, this is on page 261. David defeats Ammon and Syria. After this, the king of, of, of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to counsel him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to to Hanan their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to, to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men was, were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of beth Rehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in the battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and the Rahab and the men of Tob and Macha were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come help you. Be of courage, and let us be courageous for our people, and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning. Good morning. Uh, this will be our last Second Samuel study in, until after Advent, because we're going to be heading into a time of Advent Um, So take a little break from this Old Testament here and uh, look at some other things. And just a heads up, we're not going to look at the last several verses of chapter 10 because there are some themes in there that were covered in chapter 8. So don't be alarmed when we just kind of stop there. And when we're looking at a text like 2 Samuel 10, this is one of those biblical narratives that is um, pretty challenging to work out that there has to be a fair amount of praying and seeking the Holy Spirit and, and what the Spirit has to say to us because sometimes we get these narratives and sometimes we don't get these narratives sometimes we look into them too much sometimes we don't look into them enough and there are these biblical texts like these that are just really challenging where it doesn't seem to have a, a cohesive theme throughout this chapter And it doesn't have like this driving theme that just drives the chapter. So it makes it really challenging for a preacher or teacher to speak about. And of course, preachers and teachers are pretty gifted at just doing that, making something up, I guess. But it is challenging to see a cohesive theme in this particular chapter. And at least for me, it makes it a little harder to develop a message. But there are several topics in the passage, uh, but they don't seem to flow. And so we'll look at least at what we can kind of infer or deduce from this chapter. So looking at verses 1 and 2 first. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servant came into the land of the Ammonites. What we do know is that the Ammonites were east of Jerusalem, east of the Jordan River, and there's this King Nahash that was referenced in 1 Samuel chapter 11, who was there during Saul's reign. We don't know for 100% certainty whether this is the same Nahash, uh, because Nahash is a common name uh, for those Ammonites. And so there's a high probability that this is the same Nahash, but we don't know 100% for sure. We do know that there is a Nahash that dealt loyally with David. Now that Phrase dealt loyally is the Hebrew word that we're very familiar with. If you were here in our 2 Samuel chapter 9 study, it's the same word that was used toward Mephibosheth, that word chesed. And so David showed Mephibosheth this this kindness, this grace, this love, this mercy, because he committed a covenant with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. So did Nahash and David have this sort of covenant made? We don't know. It's not recorded for us. But maybe there was some sort of covenant made between Nahash and David. And maybe that's why he showed Hanan Hesed, But maybe not. We just don't know. Maybe, maybe he's just showing Chesed of, of, because he wants to be kind to these Ammonites. But anyway, it's the same Hebrew word Hesed. Now, what may have happened was in the days that when David was running from Saul, this young David was on the run from Saul. Saul wanted him dead. Nahash may have shown kindness to David. And here David has this opportunity to do the same for Nahash's son after Nahash has died. So what can we infer? What can we deduce from these verses? And it seems to me that the people of God are to care about how we relate people who don't have God. That we are to care about that. That the the Ammonites are not God-fearing people. The Ammonites are pagans. They are not part of the people of God. Now David is a a God-fearing person. He is a king who showed hesed to Mephibosheth when culturally, historically, when the old regime was taken over, you are to wipe out that entire previous regime. So It would be very acceptable for David to have just killed Mephibosheth, got rid of him, not worry about his throne or anything like that. But he shows him chesed. And then we see him showing the same chesed towards Hanan here in chapter 10, even though it's a bordering uh, potential enemy and doesn't really know if, like, are they going to come from the east and attack us. And so here Mephibosheth is a person of God who belongs to the covenant people, while Hanan is not a person of God who does not have a covenant with God yet David shows hesed to both that David shows kindness to both those who know God and those who don't know God now in chapters 9 and 10 we have record of David showing hesed as king he shows kindness toward people who are in covenant with God and he shows kindness towards people outside the covenant of God And maybe David is just being a model for us. The same way we are to show kindness towards everyone. The New Testament speaks of this pretty often, actually. You look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. You now, As Christians, we have an obligation to do good to everyone, and especially toward one another. We have an obligation, a responsibility to care for people outside the faith, and especially for those in the faith. Now, Thanksgiving is this week. There's this special opportunity for us to extend this, to care for everyone, but especially for those in the church. And so... If you have an extra seat at your table and there's somebody out there that is in need of that fellowship or that inclusion, please extend the invitation out. Be on the lookout for folks like that in our church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, it says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the one another, again, is also speaking for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it says also to everyone. There's this care to be extended to fellow believers, to be kind, to extend this to everyone, those outside of the faith as well. But sometimes I, I think we, we tend to be really harsh with our fellow brothers and sisters and that's, I think that's natural. It happens within our own families too, right? We, where you, where you kind of are more open to saying some things that you probably wouldn't say to somebody that you didn't know as well. And sometimes we treat those outside of the faith with even more kindness than those inside. And I think the scriptures are telling us, be careful about that. You're you're to be extending that even more so with your brothers and sisters inside. Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now look at that last sentence there in verse 45, that God is merciful, that God is compassionate to the evil and to the good. To the unjust and the just. That God is Merciful to all of us. And I, I think all of us need to do this to some extent, and we do this already, that, that we all have family and friends who are, are not believers, and yet we, we still hang out with them. Right? We, we still keep in touch with them. We still attend events with them, and we extend kindness and compassion, love, courtesy toward them, even though we don't share the same faith that we show them hesed, that we are to care about them and how we relate to them outside of the faith, and many of you are going to be getting together with family and friends this week who don't share the same faith that you share, and yet you still have that fellowship, you still have that communion, you still get together. How much more for those inside the faith, where we are brothers and sisters in the faith? Verses 3 and 4. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, at some uh, other interpretations it says at the buttocks, and set them away. So if you can imagine, it's like half a beard just cut off right, part bald, I can't grow a beard so I can't show you, I I couldn't have shown you anyway. And then they're cut off from their hips down, there's no clothing. What can we deduce from this? What can we infer from this? Well, I don't think Hanan acted alone. There was this group of Ammonite princes who were in Hanan's ears and and who were highly suspicious of David's servants that came. And and so they started feeding information to Hanan and David's intent, you know, it's not a pure intent. Hanan, it makes no sense that he would send his servants over to us. The truth is he's sending them over to to spy and to gain intelligence about our land and then he's going to take us over. That's what he's doing. What did Hanan do to David's servants? Didn't treat them kindly. I mean, again, he shaved half of their beard. He, He cut their garments at the hips. He meant to shame them. He meant to embarrass them while these guys are just kind of going there to serve this guy who just lost his father like how can we be of help we were sent by our king to help you and then this is what happened in return David was trying to do a good thing he was trying to do the right thing and this is the response that he got from them you know Hanan didn't have to go that far Hanan could have just said, no, thank you, and then just sent them back to Jerusalem. But what does he do? He, he purposely tries to shame them publicly. He purposely tries to embarrass them publicly. And he makes things so much worse. And oftentimes we do things like this as well. In the church, in our families, where we can just simply respond with, with courtesy and not go that extra insult, that extra embarrassment, that extra shame And sometimes we just don't do that. And when we do these other things, we make it a lot worse. And sometimes it's because we're listening to voices that aren't giving us the best counsel and the best advice. We're just out there asking anyone who is going to listen to us, what should we do? And culturally, at that time, to shave off a man's beard was a shame to his manhood. And so David's servants here are publicly shamed. They're publicly embarrassed in Ammon by the Ammonites. Because if you can imagine, it happens in this court, but then they have to go back from east of the Jordan and go all the way back to Jerusalem like this, half bearded, half naked. And so what they did, their intent was to hurt those guys, shame those guys, embarrass those guys. And all the while, David is just trying to do the right thing. He's just trying to do the good thing. There's no malintent behind what he's doing. When it was told, David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, "'Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return.'" When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth and the Syrians of Zoba, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maaca with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And so the Ammonites knew what they did. And it wasn't good. And instead of repenting, instead of apologizing for what they did, they doubled down. They made it worse. They escalated things. They... They had literally become a stench to David. This is what the author wrote, and this is actually what it is literally getting across, quite literally, in the way that it's written, that they became a stink, that they became a stench to David, and now they're going to have to deal with it. What are we to infer from this? What are we to gain from this? Are we to learn something from this or is this just simply a narrative that the author was writing just to report to us what happened? And so this is the challenging part because how much do we deduce for our own learning and our own practice and how much of this is just simply telling us this is what happened, don't read into it too much, don't, don't uh, read into it too little. So how much are we to moralize out of this whole narrative, if anything? Because we can go overboard with moralizing narratives. So for example, you look at 2 Kings chapter 6. You remember this story. It's a guy who borrows an axe, and when he used it, that axe head fell into the Jordan River. And so I have met people who have this moral of the story. And they say, this is a moral to show that you shouldn't lend your tools out to people. (laughs) Because I've met people like this. Actually, quite literally, when I asked to use like a garden tool or I asked to use something that they have that I, I, I just don't want to buy it for like a one-time use. So can I use this? And they literally go to this passage and they justify that this is why I don't lend out my tools. Because Second Kings chapter 6, when he lent out his axe, the guy lost it. And I think that's the over-moralizing of a narrative that people do that. It's just making way too much out of a situation, right? Like, it, that is not what the scriptures are saying, man. You're just stingy, right? So, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, then what is the purpose of the author to record this story, and is it, is it more than just reporting the story? And, and so this is one of those things, like, it's hard to tell. Because it's hard to tell because you can't really see the tone and when he's writing these things, you can when he's saying, like, they became a stench. And like, OK, that I understand because in Hebrew that he's literally saying, like, they became stinky to them. But it's really hard to tell about, like, sarcasm sometimes, right, because not, not all the time, because sometimes sarcasm is pretty clear. But it's not that clear here. So like in First Samuel 5, sarcasm is, is very clear in the Bible. This is the story of that Philistine god, Dagon. I don't know if you guys remember this story or not. But Dagon and, and the ark, so the Philistines capture the ark. They put it in this temple where Dagon is worshipped. And then so it's in the house of Dagon. And then the very next morning, the people of Ashdod come in and they find that Dagon has fallen down in his face toward the ground before the ark as if it's worshipping the ark. And so the people put it back into place. They put Dagon back into place. That's sarcastic, right? Like, your God, ha, 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 to the ark, and your God has to be put back to his place. Like, if he's a real God, your God doesn't have to be put back to his place. Give me a break, guys. Ha, <laughs> ha, right? Like, that's, that's sarcastic. Because the very next day it happens again, but this time the head's cut off and the arms are cut off. And so, again, sarcastic, he's bowing down, and that's sarcastic, like, hey, you got to go put him back to the Dagan repair shop to put back the, the head and you put back the hands. Ha ha. Like it, it's funny. Maybe you don't find it funny. I find it funny. But that's how it's written. That's how it's written. It's sarcastic. And the same thing with Judges 14 through 16, full of sarcasm in regards to what the Philistines are doing because whatever they do, it doesn't work. Everything they do is failing. And so it's just like making fun of the stupidity and just mocking. And that's just how some biblical narratives are. It's clear. It's not that clear here. Like It's harder. But maybe, maybe it is. It does seem to me that the writer is telling us to to learn from this Ammonite stupidity. To learn from an impulsive stupidity that we we need to exercise wisdom and we need to be careful about who we're asking for counsel and seeking wisdom from because whoever we're asking from isn't always the wisest person to ask like those Ammonite princes even though they're very well educated they're very well connected they might have very good intentions because they're all friends but their advice just simply isn't good and sometimes what they say actually makes things worse It's hard to tell if there's something more or less to the story, something for you to pray about and seek the Lord on. Because did the Ammonite princes actually want to enter war with David anyway? And so that's why they're telling Hanan this, so that they can accelerate that process? Don't know. Like, why would they want to enter war with David? And maybe it's because, if you look at, I always look at following the money, right? If you follow the money, you can usually find the motives and intentions of people. Maybe it's because the King's Highway goes from Damascus all the way down to Egypt. It's a major trade route. They are east of Jerusalem. And if we take over that major trade route, we got this bolted down. We can take over this region. We already know that Syria is one of our allies. And so if we play to control the trade routes in the region and collect taxes from it, we're set. But we really don't know. It's just kind of like my geopolitical mind working, right? I don't know. But if they did want to enter into war with David, would it be like this? When your dad has died, somebody has sent a group of people to help you, so you shave half of their beards, and you take off half of their clothes, and you send them back home. Is that the way to do it? It seems foolish, it seems silly, but again, who are we to judge because the people of God are oftentimes foolish and we are oftentimes silly, that we make enough of our own foolish mistakes all the time. We do it all the time. And if you're looking at a historical perspective of when this has happened, you can look at Judges chapter 9, where the Gibeonites, they fool the Israelites by making this treaty because God's people were instructed not to make a treaty with people that are close by to them because they're your direct enemies. So don't make treaties with those, but you can make treaties with people further out. And so the Gibeonites come and they claim that they're a faraway people and come on, make a, make a treaty with us. And Joshua and, and all of Israel, they ask the right questions and they tried to be really careful and they did all their due diligence and they did all their research they did all their study they talked to all these people about the Gibeonites they referenced checks and all this kind of stuff they googled everything they try to be so careful they even looked at their water skins like you know what they probably came from afar because their water skins are cracked and look at their sandals they're very old and they have holes in them and they looked like they've come from afar. And the bread that they have here, it's not fresh bread. It's stale bread. It's really hard. They're from afar. We can make a treaty with them. It was a mistake. They weren't people from afar. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. This is the key part to this. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's the crucial mistake. That the people of God were fooled because they did not seek counsel from the Lord. They sought it from everybody else. They sought it from themselves. They asked each other. They looked at the evidence before. They did everything that they could, but they did not ask God. And so how many times do we do the same thing? We fall into this foolishness that we seek counsel from everywhere else for we didn't seek God. James chapter 1, starting verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We don't know everything. We need to ask God, who does know everything. We need to ask God for wisdom because we lack it. And we Christians lack godly wisdom. We need to ask God for this wisdom. Back to Second Samuel 10. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Ma'akah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of the men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Okay, what happens? David sends Joab, one of his generals, and when he gets to the battle, he realizes he's caught in the middle. And he's going to have to fight this two-front battle, which is not a good way to fight. That there's an army in front of him, and there's an army behind him, and he is stuck. This is a very bad place to be. And so he strategizes with his brother Abishai. You know, bro, you, you're going to take those guys, I'm going to take these guys, and if we need each other's help, just call out, we'll help each other. And all of the theology of this chapter is actually found here in Verse 12. This is the theology of this chapter. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. What's the problem with this? Well, if you're looking at Joab, he's not a good guy. Do you remember Joab? 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3. He's not a good guy. This guy is a revengeful, plotting murderer. You remember he's the guy who killed Abner in revenge for his brother Ashael's death. And some of you are probably thinking like, oh, that's justified. It was revenge for his brother. But here's the thing. Abner was running away. He already he was retreating. He, he was done. He was not wanting to fight anymore. And Asahel kept pursuing him and he kept warning him like, dude, turn around. I don't want to fight you. Here, take all the spoils. Dude, I, I don't want to fight you. Just go away. But he wouldn't. He just kept coming at him, kept coming at him and then they had to fight. And so when they fought, Abner killed him. Otherwise he'd be killed. The guy called a truce already. I'm done. Like I'm, I'm running away. I'm retreating. And so then A time later, Abner goes back to David, and he comes with a treaty. And he says, I want a peace treaty with you. Whatever happened in the past happened in the past. Let's get a new thing. And David agrees. The king agrees to the treaty. Joab finds out and says, like, what? He killed my brother. And he says, I don't care about a peace treaty. Call him back. Tell him that David wants him to come back, which is a lie. He lies to him to get him back, and then when Joab shows up with his enemy right there in front of him, Abner, he kills him, murders him, cold blood. When the guy's thinking, I already have a peace treaty with, with your country, your king already signed off on it. So it's not an act of war where this guy's pursuing and he's, he's forcing him into battle, he's sneakily getting him back and he murders him. But the thing is, is that he knows good theology. But just because you know good theology doesn't mean that you're a good person because even the devil knows good theology. The demons know good theology and they can spout it out. It doesn't mean that they're good people. But here's the thing with verse 12, that even when we don't really know how things are going to turn out because of our own circumstances and events and things, we can still declare the word of the Lord, that we can still proclaim good theology, God's truth. And God might even use somebody to do that in your life who you're thinking, like, that's a rotten person, but it's truth. See, we we all face these tough circumstances in our life and these tough situations, and we don't know how things are going to work out in our life. We, We just, we don't. But we can still declare by faith what we know to be truth in God's word. That faith is resting in what God has promised. And sometimes there isn't a specific promise from God in your circumstance or in what you're going through. And in verse 12, Joab doesn't know if God has promised him victory in this battle. He and his brother can very well be killed here. But he does know that the Lord will do what seems good to him. We know what we pray for in accordance with God's promise. That those things come to fruition. Jesus is coming back. You can rest in that one. That's a promise. The thing is we don't know if what we pray for will happen outside of those promises. Just like in verse 12. And there are these times we don't know like in Joshua 11 verse 6 when Joshua fought against the Canaanites and the Lord said to Joshua do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. That's a promise from God so you can rest in that. It's a specific promise to Joshua there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 10 there's no assurance to Abishai. There's no assurance to Joab. There are these general promises that God made to David in chapter 7, like the covenant passages that he made, that David's enemies will be cut off and that David will receive rest from his enemies. There are those promises. But Joab didn't receive a specific promise or or assurance of this particular battle, that this particular circumstances of battling with the Ammonites has no assurance. It has no promise. See, uncertainty doesn't mean that you lack faith. We still hold to the promises of God. There are just some circumstances that are unknowable. There are things that aren't clear. There are things that we don't know how they're going to turn out. While we do know that there are promises of God that he has made that will turn out because he has said verse 12 the Lord do what seems good to him and God has given us promises he's given us assurances you look at Hebrews chapter 13 verse five I will never leave you nor forsake you that is a promise He will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is a promise. And so those are promises. Those are assurances. But... God hasn't promised us specific outcomes to our particular circumstances. He hasn't promised me and you health. He hasn't promised me and you wealth. He hasn't promised us the absence of painful losses. He hasn't promised us a husband or a wife or children He hasn't promised you that your spouse is not going to want a divorce. There are so many things that are specific to promises that he has not made to you and me. So how are we to look at these things that we aren't promised? You go back to verse 12. The Lord do what seems good to him. That's the theology of it. And that is where we need to rest in the Lord. This is where our faith is to be when we don't have a specific promise from God. And in order to have faith, there needs to be the existence of uncertainty. Otherwise, it is not faith. So faith is cheerfully leaving our uncertainty in the hands of God leaving it at his feet. Verses 15 and 19, those themes are covered in chapter 8, so if you want to listen to that there, uh, that's where it is. Let's pray. Lord, very difficult to take this to heart because there have been some really painful things that have happened, are happening, or will happen to see that, Lord, do what seems good to you And sometimes we don't understand it because what seems good to you and then it happens to us, it seems horrible to us. When we lose loved ones, it seems horrible. When they suffer, it seems horrible. When we see injustice in our world, it seems horrible. And so how does that seem good to you? And yet, God, you sent your son to die on the cross for us that does not seem like a good thing and yet it was necessary for us to reconcile with you and to restore our relationship with you and so it's not always about happiness and it's not always about the moment but these eternal decisions that you are a good God we know that And you orchestrate all these things to fit in this fallen world with our fallen nature. And Lord, do what seems good to you. We trust that. That's our faith in the presence of all the uncertainty that we have. Lord, do what seems good to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's take that out. If anyone is wanting, needing prayer, um, Mike is in the left front pew here and he'd be honored to pray with you. And as we take our communion elements out, this wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ. You know, the things that we're going through, um, probably many of us are going through something very challenging, myself included. Um, There are some health issues within my family, mental health issues within my family that I've been pretty transparent about and shared with our church. It is challenging to think, Lord, do what seems good to you. Because what seems good to me is like, heal my daughter, right? But we have to have the faith because he still allowed his son to go on the cross. God raised him. I have faith in that for my kid too. We take this in honor of Christ whose body was broken for us. This other symbol, the symbol of the spilled blood of Christ symbolizes the life flowing through his veins and yet this is spilled on our behalf again. Lord, do what seems good to you. You allowed your son to get beaten and mocked and suffer and hang on that cross and have all this blood spill out from him and that seemed good to you. He did it for you and me. We take this in his name. Lord Jesus, there are these grand promises that you make, and we hold on to those things. We know that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that is something we hold on to. But in our particular circumstances and the things that we're dealing with right now, where we just don't understand how that seems good to you, We'll see that in eternity. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.